one thing you need to learn and this will go throughout your career never trust anyone in the distributed system that's the default rule but i think a key point which dynamo was emphasizing on and we wanted to do is that we want to build a we want to build a protocol which is um scalable and predictable and what is the interface we want to provide to customers generally transactions are considered at odds at odds with scalability one of the things we really actually considered and debated a lot was multi version concurrency control but but supporting multi version concurrency control in dynamo would actually mean we have to change the storage engine Hey folks, this is Alex Debris and I just love today's episode. You know, I'm a huge DynamoDB fan and today we have Akshat and Somu. They are two of the senior principal engineers on the DynamoDB team. I have huge respect for them. They've both been there, you know, before DynamoDB was released. So um, I, it was a great conversation with them. The DynamoDB team has written some really great papers, one each in the last two years, just talking about some of the infrastructure behind Dynamo. And the one this year was about distributed transactions at scale in DynamoDB. So we talk about that paper here. We talk about database internals. If you like to nerd out about this stuff, I think this is a really good talk. Uh, one thing I always love about these Amazon papers, especially the DynamoDB team, is just how well they talk about thinking about user needs and what users actually want. How can we simplify this down? And what's the technical implementation to make that happen for them? Uh, one thing after we got off the call, Akshan Sumu, they wanted to say, hey, make sure you, you shout out the other people on those papers. So thanks to all the other authors on that paper. They especially called out Doug Terry, who helped with the paper with their talks and presentations, and I think just with the ideation and implementation of um, uh, transactions in DynamoDB. So if you like the show, you know, make sure you like, subscribe, give us a review, whatever. Also feel free to reach out with suggestions, guests, anything like that. And with that, let's get to the show. Akshat Samu, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you two are both uh, senior principal engineers on the DynamoDB team at, at AWS, which is a, a, a pretty high position. Um, can you give everyone a little background on, on what it is you do on the Dynamo team, how long you've been there, things like that? Yeah, I can go first. So I joined uh, Amazon, I think 2010. And from there, I first was working in Amazon India. And then when I saw AWS getting built, I was like, hey, I want to work here because, you know, the problems are super fun. So I joined uh, first SimpleDB team and at the same time DynamoDB was incepted. So I've been with like DynamoDB right from its inception and have been able to contribute like a lot of bugs and a lot of features to DynamoDB over the years like DynamoDB streams, point in time backup restore, uh, transactions, global databases and we are going to talk about transactions today. So like Akshat, I've been uh, with Amazon for about 12 years now. Um, I started in Dynamo um, and I've been working with uh, in Dynamo. I've worked in all components of Dynamo, front end, back end, control plane. Uh, but my areas of focus right now are replication services, uh, transactions. Um, so replication services is global secondary indexes, global, global tables, uh, what we're doing for our regional table replication uh, and how we make it highly available. So a uh, bunch of my focus has been around this stuff, but uh, around all the multi-region uh, multi services we have as well at this point in time. Awesome, great. Well, th well, thanks for coming on because like, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a huge DynamoDB fan and, and big fans of, of, of you two. Um, I'm excited to talk about your new paper. You know, there's, a, there's a, a really good history of papers sort of in this area, right? Like the original, Amazon Dynamo paper, not DynamoDB, you know, in, in 06 or so really kicked off a lot in the NoSQL world. Um, last year, the, the Amazon DynamoDB paper that basically said, hey, here's where we took some of those learnings, made it into this cloud service and, and what we learned and what we built um, with DynamoDB. And now this year, the, the, this new transactions paper that came out, which is distributed transactions at scale in Amazon DynamoDB, if people want to go look that up, just showing how you you added that on and how transactions can work at scale. So I'm excited to go deep on on that today. Maybe just to get started, Akshad, do you want to tell us like what are what are transactions and um, you know, is especially why are they what are the uniqueness of transactions in NoSQL databases? Yeah. So I think if you look at NoSQL databases, uh, a lot of NoSQL databases either did support, do not support transactions because NoSQL databases, they are, you know, generally um, the key characteristics that are considered good or that the reason people choose them is high availability, high scalability, and single-digit millisecond performance. Um, DynamoDB provides all three. Um, so specifically, generally, transactions are considered at 
odds at odds with scalability and scalability here I refer as two things. One is predictable performance and second is unbounded growth. Like your table can be really tiny in the beginning and as you do more traffic, it can scale, it can partition. So mostly, I think previously we have seen like a lot of NoSQL databases, they shy away from implementing transactions. So or some do implement, but they implement it in a form which is like constraint where you can do transaction on a single partition, all the items that that reside, you know, at a single machine. Uh, so when we started hearing from our customers that, hey, we would like to have uh, transactions in DynamoDB. Um, so you're like, okay, this this first, let's just understand why do you actually need it? Because, you know, we have seen a lot of workloads that are running on DynamoDB without actual transactions. So what exactly are you looking for um, in, in transactions? So I think we went through that journey and took the challenge that, hey, we really want to add um, transactions which provide the ACID properties, atomicity, consistency, durability, and isolation um, for multi-item and multi-table writes that you want to do, reads or writes that you want to do on your database table uh, in DynamoDB or across tables in DynamoDB. And that, that's how we started. Absolutely. And so transactions were released at reInvent 2018. So this is six and a half years after, after Dynamo has been out. I guess, how soon after Dynamo being out were you starting to get requests for transactions? How long did that sort of user research period last of, like you're saying, like, what do you need these for? What sort of constraints um, do you have here? Yeah, so before we actually added transactions, I think there was a transactions library that was built uh, by Amazon, like one of the developers in our team, uh, David Janacek. Um, he built a transactions library that was essentially uh, doing trying to provide the same ex same experience of like asset properties on your on your database um so this was i don't remember exactly but this was i think 2016 ish time 2014 ish 2014 ish 2015 ish i think yeah something something around those times but i think like the pattern that we were seeing was a lot of like for example control planes that are get getting built or a lot of teams in amazon who are you know, using DynamoDB. And at that time, there was also like a push that, hey, we want to move all the workloads to DynamoDB and get away from the relational databases that were, that we have seen have like scaling limitations. So transactions became like really important for making that transfer from SQL databases to NoSQL databases. Um, and at that point, like transactions library was one thing which we saw that, okay, the adoption of transactions library is increasing. So that was one signal. And second is people started like, like telling us about, hey, the transactions library is great, but there are certain limitations that we are seeing with that, which is for every write, we have like 7x cost we have to pay because transactions library essentially was trying to maintain a ledger and the whole state machine of where the transaction is, how far it has gone forward. And in case... The transaction is not going to finish. It has to do the rollbacks and things of that nature. So all the complexity was actually encapsulated in this library as an abstraction given to the customers. Um, so overall, I would say the signal of people adopting that library a lot more and direct conversations with the customers hearing about, hey, this is a specific use case we're building. And it would really simplify uh, if there was like acid properties, so like full atomic transactions across multiple tables and multiple items uh, in DynamoDB. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see that trade-off between like the the client-side solutions like Transactions Library or a few other ones that, that Dynamo provides and then like the actual, you know, service solutions. Given that Dynamo like sort of gives you all the low-level access to, you know, most of the stuff, you can, you can perform that or be kind of like a query planner or a transaction coordinator client-side if you want. Um, but then it's nice when that, when that can move up into that uh, server layer. Um, I guess once you decided, Hey, we're building transactions, how long does it take? You know, you already had tens of thousands of users, you know, probably millions of requests per second things like that. How long did that take to build and deliver that feature for where it's available, um, you know, at reInvent in that November? I think once, once we, once we kind of decided that we wanted to, uh, build transactions, we had a bunch of 
uh, people go and figure out like, hey, what are the algorithms which is doable? So going back to your initial question of like, NoSQL databases usually shy away from transactions. It's the scale and complexity of it, right? Like um, there are different algorithms you can do or implement. And then you have, once your transaction fails, how do you kind of recover transactions? And a lot that has to go into like, what is the algorithm you're going to choose and build? But I think a key point which Dynamo was emphasizing on and we wanted to do is that we want to build a, we want to build a protocol which is um, scalable and predictable and what is the interface we want to provide to customers because traditional transactions have been like, hey, begin transaction, end transaction. And a lot of customers are used to that, right? Um, but that would take away a key feature, key tenet of Dynamo which is like predictable performance because you now don't know how, many, how long your transaction is going to be, right? So how do we kind of balance that trade-off? What do we, how do we kind of expose this to customers? What are the protocols we're going to choose? I think we spent a lot of time on that. And then when we were closer to knowing what the protocol was and what the APIs were, I think it was, um, it was roughly about a year, I would say, uh, that it took, took us to kind of... Yeah, and I think a lot of time, I would say, goes into, as Sumo was saying, a lot of time goes into like understanding state-of-the-art, like what already exists. And then doing trade-offs, POCs to actually, like, actually, you know, figure out what, how much time it took us to uh, decide this is the right one. Because, you know, there, there is like Dynamo, uh, as, as I was saying, right, Acid, like Atomicity for single item was already there. Consistency, like you have consistent reads and eventual consistent reads. And, you know, pre we, when you do a write, you, we preserve the correct state. So consistency, you, you already get that. Isolation, I think, was the main thing. And atomicity across multiple items was the was the thing that we we wanted to add. So I think a lot of time I would say goes into two phases. One is just figuring out what to do, and once you figure out, building I think is the fastest. That last part is actually proving what we have built is correct. Um, so yeah, yeah. yeah. you talked <laughs> about um, different constraints that different ones have on. You talked about you know some of these only implemented on a single shard or node or partition, whatever that is. I assume that wasn't really feasible for Dynamo just because that's sort of invisible to you and because those partitions are so small. But that other constraint of, of, hey, it has to come in as a single request and all get executed together, someone mentioned, like, was that something you nailed, like narrowed in on pretty early of like, hey, this is, this is what we're going to do. And where you check with users, like, is that going to be okay? Will that still give you what you want? Or, or is that something that came, you know, took a while to, to hash out and figure out? Yeah. So I think for for like that specific journey if i if i recall i think we did like a lot of i would say uh, experiments and research on that and it involved uh, trying out like um some of the workloads so we actually went and talked to customers to understand hey why do they use this concept of begin and end transaction and specifically i think the reason we chose one of the biggest reason is that you know um if you let uh, someone do like begin transaction and then send a bunch of writes and reads and also like other operations maybe someone puts a sleep there so the resources are tied up for that long um, for that particular transaction and then when the resources are tied up you also don't get predictable performance so I think a lot of these decisions went into defining the tenets for what transactions should look like so we, we essentially defined goals for it that we want to execute a set of operations atomically and serializably for any items in any tables with predictable performance and also no impact to non-transactional workloads. So a lot of like techniques, standard techniques like two-phase locking um, and you know the the begin and begin end uh, transaction approach, like a lot of those just like did not make sense for us. And even I think um, for example, one of the things we really actually considered and debated a lot was multi-version concurrency control. If we had, if we could build something on that, you know, you get like read isolation. Uh, so your your reads could be isolated from writes. But but supporting multi-version concurrency control in Dynamo would actually mean we have to change the storage engine. And to if you build MVCC, you need to track multiple versions, which means the additional cost that comes with it of storing multiple items, then you have to pass that cost to the customers. So, you know, that particular also, uh, we had to, all these basically standard approaches we had to reject. And then we nailed it down to, okay, we want to do like a single request transactions based on this these goals or tenets that we have defined. So then we went to some teams in amazon.com and said that, hey, if we provide you these two APIs, would this 
would you be able to convert your like existing transactional workloads into like a DynamoDB transaction? And we did similar exercise with some external customers as well to validate what we are building has, you know, that does not have like obvious adoption blockers and things of that nature. Uh, and turns out all the use cases that we actually discussed with the customers, they were, you know, able, they were, they were, we were able to convert them into the two APIs that we added, two operations in the DynamoDB APIs that we added. One is transact write items and second is transact get items. Um, and like just to explain transact write items and transact get items a little bit, essentially with transact write items, you can do like a bunch of writes, which could be like update, delete, or uh, put request. And you can also specify conditions. The conditions could be on these items which you're trying to update, the DynamoDB standard of uh, like OCC write that you do. Or you can also do a check item, which is not an item that you're updating on a transaction. Um, and similarly for transact gets, a separate API, where you can do um, multiple gets in the same call, which you want to read uh, in a serializable manner. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I love that single request model. And I think uh, you're right that like almost anything that can, can be modeled into it and the ones that can't are, are probably the ones your DBA is going to advise you against doing anyway on your relational database, like where you're holding that transaction open for a while and maybe calling some other API or something like those can really get you into trouble. Um, you mentioned sort of like, hey, what's the what's the state of the art in terms of protocols and patterns and things like that? Like, where do you go look for research on transaction protocols or, or, or just different things that's happening. Is that academia? Is that industry papers? Or, or where are you finding that stuff? Both, right? I think uh, there's been a lot of good work in academia starting from the 60s about transactions. It is very interesting <laughs> um, because uh, the inspiration we took was uh, from one of the papers uh, published by Phil Bernstein. And this was in the 1970s when most of us were not even born, right? So I think there's, uh, academia has a lot of the good research and then there's there's been a lot of good research in the industry as well now. Like there's been, uh, industry's been doing a lot of research and we've been publishing recently as well. So industry has also been doing a lot of, a lot of research. So we look back at a lot of the uh, papers which are published in standard computer science conferences like um, Musenet, Sigmar, uh, OSDI, um, and then uh, learn from what, what has worked in the past and what has not worked in the past and what will work for us technically, right? Like, um, in case of uh, transactions, the timestamp ordering, why does it work for us? Uh, we will definitely go into details. Um, and there's a, there's an element of that as well here as like what uh, what makes sense for us. Yeah. What does that look like at Amazon? Like, is it mostly just informal? Like, hey, did you see this new paper? Or are there like, you know, scheduled reading groups or or different things like that to to make sure you're, everyone's up on the latest stuff? What does that we look like? We have scheduled reading groups because we have people of varied interests and we want to kind of learn a lot about what's happening, what's not happening. And, we may not get to do that in a, on a day-to-day in a job basis, right? So we have uh, people who have focused reading groups who read papers all the time and talk about like, hey, pros and cons. What did we understand? What we did not understand? Uh, what did the paper do well? What did the paper not do well? Um, like we had, uh, and we talk a lot about uh, uh, how to use the different things. Like for example, a, a big thing within Amazon is like, how do we use formal modeling tools like TLA plus or P modeling, right? Um, and we'll have scheduled groups which kind of go dive deep into that stuff. Um, so there are scheduled groups to, for everything like data structures, algorithms, distributed systems. And, and I know like I've seen a lot on, on TLA Plus at Amazon. Is that something that, you know, both of you are doing or is that something like, hey, there's a group that's really good at that or a few people that are really good at that and they'll, they'll come help you through it? Like how often are you actually using those, those sort of methods? So there, uh, there are very few people who use TLA plus, par- partly because it's it's yeah. more complex. Uh, yeah. But it's very yeah. helpful. Like for example, uh, with the plus style, it's made a lot life a lot easier to go for you and me to go write something. Um, back in the day, the yeah. TLA plus specification was harder to write, but with plus style, it's very easy when they convert it to TLA plus. It's e- easy to write. The P modeling is something which we kind of have all developers now kind of use because it's closer to the code you would write, and it is easier to kind of. Uh, prototype in P model uh, and check a model in P and then run with that stuff. I think that's that's something we have asked all, all developers to write. Um, TLA plus has usually been like a niche set of developers where we use this stuff for a really um, very critical set of problems like Dynamo when we started when we did Dynamo first we 
we had a TLA plus model for all of Dynamo operations to ensure that everything is correct. And that's still the foundation for Dynamo in some ways. And same for transactions. Um, we did a similar thing for transactions as well to prove the correctness of the algorithm. And and similar to that, we actually also have like a verifier, acid verifier, which runs in production to, you know, uh, since like whatever time has the transactions has been launched, uh, we still run the acid verifier on just to, you know, make sure that we have not like any gaps that we have uh, any blind spots or anything, things like that uh, to, to ensure protocol is correct. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one more thing before we get into internals of transactions, like you're both senior principal engineers, you've been at Dynamo for tw- 12 years, like obviously doing a lot of higher level stuff. I'm, I'm sure writing documents, writing these papers, giving talks, but Amazon is also known for being very like practical hands-on for their advanced people. Like how much during, how much time during the week do you still sit down and, and write code? So I think it varies, varies on like yeah. different phases of the project. Um, like overall, yeah. I would say like in terms of if if I look at the like full year, um, a lot of time I think is spent in figuring out like what we are doing and how we are doing and whether it is like, you know, correct or not. Yeah. And then second phase is, I think, where you write like the P-modeling stuff that, that someone was talking about. I think a lot of time gets spent in that. And third is, I think, POCs, where you come up with an idea, you write a POC to prove that, hey, this actually makes sense or this actually whatever we are claiming is uh, going to be uh, what we would, um, is, is what we are claiming is actually going to be achieved. So that's one. And then third, I would say the last part is, you know, reviewing and ensuring that operationally we are ready and ensuring that um, the the testing that we're doing, we have like good coverage. So I would say like writing code, testing, P-modeling, writing docs, uh, it's like equal split uh, in terms of like the yeah. time spent. And, and if, yeah. if I am working on a project, I would usually take something no other developer wants to take or non-critical because I'm not blocking them in any way or fashion because I'm doing a bunch of other things as well simultaneously. So I think, yeah. um, like Akshat said, it depends on the face of the project. If it's if it's something which is an ideation at this point in time, we would write a bunch of code to kind of prove it works, it doesn't work. Or we're doing some modeling stuff at this point in time, right? Um, so that's how we kind of uh, ensure that uh, we are up to date and hands-on on the stuff as well. And the other part is also code reviews, which like, you know, still keep you very yeah. close uh, connected. Yeah. Uh, so that yeah. because operationally, I think if you're not connected operationally, it's very hard to um, debug things when you get paged at night at 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, cool. Okay, let's get into transaction internals. First thing, two-phase commit, which is the, the you know, pattern you use here um, on the transaction coordinator. Uh, do one of you want to explain how two-phase commit works? Yeah, so like before that, let's just talk through like a high level at uh, like DynamoDB, like normal put request that comes and flows sure. through and then I'll add the two phase, how we implemented that. Sure. So first, okay. any request that like a developer or an application sends to DynamoDB, it first, first hits like load balancer. From there, it goes to a request router, which is like stateless fleet. The request router has to figure out where to, where to send this request. Like if it's a put request, uh, it, sends it to a leader leader replica of a partition. Now DynamoDB table is partitioned for like scale um, and that number of partitions that are identified based on the size or the read and write capacity units that you want for your table. Um, so you might have a table which has like 10 partitions and this item that you're trying to put will reside in a specific partition and that partition has three replicas and one of the replica is the leader replica. Uh, so the write request goes to that leader and it replicates it to two other replicas before two other followers which once it gets acknowledgement from at least one more so two two copies are durably written we acknowledge it back to the client to find out which storage node to route the request there is a metadata system which we use now for transactions we introduced transaction coordinator uh, which has the responsibility of ensuring that a particular transaction that is accepted has to uh, go through completely. And so a request that customer makes, like a transact write item request, it goes to the request router, goes to the transaction coordinator. First thing the transaction coordinator does, it, it stores it in a ledger and ledger is like a DynamoDB table and we can come back to come back to it. 
Uh, but the main point of Ledger is to ensure that we can, whatever request, we execute it um, atomically. Like either the full request succeeds or it does not uh, succeed. And second part is fault tolerance that uh, if a transaction coordinator which is processing a request crashes, since the request is stored in the ledger, any other transaction coordinator can pick it up and run with it, right? So transaction coordinator, once it stores it in the ledger, it is kind of doing like checkpointing and state management of where the transaction is. So once it is stored in the ledger, it sends prepare messages to uh, all the storage nodes involved. So let's say you are doing a 10 item transaction, which are for 10 different tables, and they could be like 10 completely different partitions, right? All in the all in the um, uh, same account. Now, once that request is uh, sent for prepares, at that point, all the check conditions, like if you're doing an OCC write with a put item, uh, or you're purely doing just a check item. And, and just to interrupt you, what's, what's OCC? Yeah, so optimistic concurrency control. So if you want to do a write saying that, hey, I I want this write to succeed only if certain conditions are evaluated to true. If that happens, then only accept this write. Otherwise, you know, reject this particular uh, write request that we are saying sending to you. So prepare messages are evaluating that. And it also evaluates if there are any uh, any of the uh, validations that like item size, 400 KB item, things like that. If any of those will be will not be met, then you should just reply back saying, I cannot accept the transaction. But assuming that every storage node, all the 10 storage nodes in the 10 item transaction case, reply back saying that, yeah, this particular transaction uh, prepare, we can accept the transaction moves on to the commit phase. And once it has passed the prepare phase, i.e. Um, the transaction coordinator got acknowledgement from every storage node and it is also durably written in the ledger that the transaction has finished the prepare state, it moves to the commit state, uh, which is, you know, making sure the actual write happening at that particular point. So the item is uh, taken from the ledger and then sent to the, the, the specific storage node to finish the transaction. And once the commits are done, your full transaction actually um, actually is finished. So at high level, that's the two-phase protocol. Gotcha. Okay, so we have pre prepare and commit. Prepare is just basically checking with every node, saying, hey, is this good or not? If they all come back with that accept thumbs up, then it comes back and says, okay, go ahead and, and commit. And once it's in that commit phase and then tells them all to execute, is, it, is there basically like no going back? Even like, say one of those nodes yes. failed originally or something happens, like we're just going to keep trying until that, like we've already decided this transaction is going through at this point. Yes. Once, once the transaction has reached the commit phase, um, then it's executed to completion. Right? Uh, failure of transaction coordinator or failure of a node which is hosting the partition was not going to stop it. It's going to kind of finish it complete, uh, to completion. Uh, if a transaction coordinator fails, another one is going to pick it up because it knows, oh, hey, the transaction is in commit phase. I'm just going to send commit messages to all the other, all the, all the items which are involved in the transaction, no matter whether it knows whether it, uh, a single item is sent, commit has been sent or not. Um, if a storage node fails, it's, it's the same thing. We nodes fail all the time. A new leader is elected and the new leader can complete the uh, commit. Uh, it doesn't need any prior knowledge of the transaction uh, at this point in time. Okay. So tell me about that, that transaction coordinator failing. What, how does it, how does a new one pick that up, pick up that, that stall transaction and make sure it gets executed? So all transaction coordinators run a small component, component of the recovery. So they keep scanning the ledger to say, hey, are, are all transactions getting executed? And if they find a transaction which is not executed for a long period of time, um, then they would say, this transaction is not executed at this point in time, so either we kind of uh, take it forward. So let's say there is a transaction in prepare state. So transaction coordinator may say, you know, this transaction code has not been executed for a long time. Uh, it's in prepare state, so I don't know what happened to all the prepares. What I'm going to do just do is cancel this transaction. I'm not going to execute this transaction, so I'm going to move this into a canceled phase and then send cancel notifications to all the members involved in the transaction. Um, or... <clears throat> Or it can decide, oh, the transaction is in commit phase. Let me just take it to completion and send everybody a commit message at this point in time, right? So this is a small recovery component. Um, there's a small bit piece we missed, which is like when, when we do the prepares for an item, um, every storage node has a marker saying, well, this item has been prepared for this particular transaction. And let's say that for some reason that the um, transaction has not been acted upon for some 
period of time and the storage node looks at the item and says, hey, this item is still in prepared state for quite some time. It can also kick off a recovery and say, hey, can you please somebody recover this transaction, recover this item for me because it's been like a long time since the transaction started. And when you say a long time, are, how, how are we talking? Are we talking like seconds or like a minute or what is that? We're like? talking like five minutes, seconds at this point in time, okay. right? Like, Yeah, seconds, seconds, yeah. And I think the, the the most interesting part out of this also is there is no rollbacks. That's why there are no rollbacks here, right? Like because the prepare phase is actually not writing anything. It's just storing that marker that Somo pointed out. Uh, and hence, if any of the prepare fails or like, you know, we identify that this transaction cannot be completed, we just send cancellation, which is basically not, yeah, aborting the transaction. Gotcha. And if anything is in the... I guess the prepare phase where it's it's a node has accepted it and then sent back accept, but maybe the transaction is stalled for whatever reason. Are rights to that item effectively blocked at that point until it's recovered? Yes. So the rights to that particular okay. item cannot cannot be now serialized. So you would have to have the transaction complete to have the rights serialized. So any other singleton right would be kind of re rejected saying, hey, there's a transaction conflict at this point in time. We can't reject it. But we can talk a little bit more about this because we did talk in the paper about some optimizations we can do there and we not we know that we can do this optimization. But in, in reality, we've not seen this this happen. Customers um, mixing traffic of transact rights with singleton rights. So we kind of don't see this uh, thing in much, uh, much in practice to kind of go and say, okay, we have to go and implement this optimization where we can do serialize these rights. Oh, that that's interesting. So most items you see are are sort of either involved in transaction rights or singleton rights, but not not both. Well, that's interesting, yeah. uh, which is kind of like a recommendation, I think, from Cassandra, right, with their, their like lightweight transactions, because I think you can get some some bad issues there if it, with that. But it, it's it's interesting that like customer patterns sort of work out that way anyway. Yeah, and I think the the part of like if there is like a transaction stuck, as Somo pointed out, if there is a write request that comes to it and the transaction has been stuck for a while, that also will kick off like, you know, recovery automatically. Um, yeah, plus I think when we devise these algorithms, we actually thought about, you know, we want to support for like contention as well. So that's why we chose timestamp ordering and where we can do some interesting tricks, which we talked about. And we actually, you know, also tried some of those implementations before we went ahead with this approach. Yeah. Okay. And and for a transaction that's stuck, like what happened to the client there? Is that just hanging until, it, you know, it times out at like 30 seconds, whatever the client timeout is? Or if, if, if something picks it up, is it going to be able to respond back to that client? Or like, is that basically just like, hey, we'll clean it up, but the client, you know, they're they're short on their own at that point. So the transact write item request, they're actually item potent. So if, let's say, like a request that took longer than the client timeout, clients can just retry using the same client token, uh, which is the item potency token. And that token is used to identify, you know, what based that token uniquely identifies the transaction. And based on that, we can tell you that, hey, this transaction actually succeeded if you come back or this transaction failed. But again, most of these transactions are, we are still talking millisecond. We're not talking seconds to finish, right? Yeah. Most of the transactions are finished, still finishing in milliseconds and getting clients are getting an acknowledgement back on these. Yep. Should I, um, you mentioned the idempotency and the client request token on a transact, right? Should I always include a, a client request token? Like there's no I mean, not cost, but even like, a, there's not, no like latency um, cost on that or, or any sort of cost. Is there yeah. a, a, no, just including we, that? That's a recommendation from DynamoDB. If you're, if you're using transact, write item request, use the client token so that you can recover really easily um, yeah. and retry as many, as many times. There is a time limit for which this client item potency token will work because you might be trying to do a different transaction. Uh, so there is a time limit after which it won't. Um, and so, yeah, it is recommended to use it. So the nice thing about yeah. client request token, Alex, is that let's say your um, your client for some reason timed out, but the request was executed successfully on Dynamo side. You can come back with the same thing in Dynamo and say, hey, this transaction was successful. You know, you don't have to kind of execute this stuff. Um, I think that's that's a super nice thing about the client request token. And also the fact that let's say that um, if uh, if for some reason, um, if for some reason you come back and the item potency token has expired, um, I think that, that window is 10, 10 minutes at this point in time, uh, we would try to re-execute the transaction, right? But most of the transactions are usually have conditions in them and the conditions will fail. And then we will say, okay, you know, this transaction has a condition failure, so we won't be able to execute this stuff. 
Yeah, and this client token actually was not something we initially planned to add. This was, again, when we built it, we gave it to a few customers. They tried it out and they, they were like, hey, this particular use case, you know, we don't know if this transaction succeeded or failed because we timed out. So this was like, I would say, in the later part of the project, we designed it, implemented it and, and uh, launched it. So quite a flexible and iterative process in there. <laughs> yeah, cool. And, and to, okay, so you mentioned that there's like the 10 minute window where that, that uh, request is, is sort of guaranteed to be identity if you're including that token. So are you just keeping records in that transaction ledger for 10 minutes, like expiring at some point, but at least they're hanging around for yeah. 10 minutes is the point there. Okay. Okay. And then you mentioned like looking for stalled transactions. Is that just like, you're just like sort of brute force scanning the ta table, like taking all the transaction coordinators, each one's taking a segment and just continually running scans against it. It's a parallel scan, parallel scan. So okay. the, the ledger is a DynamoDB table. I think we talked about this before. And I think it's, it's very um, heavily sharded, to put it uh, nicely. So you, you can do a lot of scans on this table and it's, it's in a uh, paper request table, right? So it's, and uh, we have all the transaction coordinates, they can pick a small segment of it and say, oh, I don't need to scan thousand items. So, uh, and they all can scan it quite quickly and figure out any um, transactions are just stalled. Okay. Um, tell me about that DynamoDB table that's used for the ledger. Like, is that, is there like a different Dynamo instance somewhere that's used for these internal type things like the ledger or like, or, or is it just like a loop of, of writing back to itself? Like, what is that, you know, Dynamo as a service, right, is a multi-tenant service. So all these customers across uh, a region or a lot of customers within a region are using the exact same Dynamo service, you know, they're, um, like, I guess, like, how does that sort of foundational Dynamo instance work? Is that a separate instance that's um, that's sort of different and special or anything like that? No, this is this is a normal user level table. Like then the transaction okay. coordinators are just, just another user and is not yeah. normal user level table at this point in time. Um, as you mentioned that there is a circular dependency here, so you can't use transactions on this table, but we don't need to have, yeah. we don't have a need to use transactions on this table, right? So um, this is a Dynamo level table. I uh, use normal user level table. So we get all the other features of Dynamo, uh, which we can use. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. Okay, um, all right. Let's. You mentioned timestamp ordering a couple of times. What I, I guess what is timestamp ordering? How does it? How how do you use it in transactions? Yeah, so timestamp ordering. So we talked a, a lot about atomicity till now. The two phase protocol, right? Like for serializability, we decided to like borrow timestamp ordering technique, which so and, and hold on, serializability. This is like a confusing topic, but just like <laughs> high level. <laughs> What, we'll spend hours on that. If, if you could do like what, what no one else has managed to do and describe that in like one or two senses, like what, what's the high level idea of, of serializability? So I think it's mainly around concurrent access. If you have like concurrent access of like data in a database, right? You need to define a order in which these transactions are executing. So timestamp ordering has this like very nice property that if you assign a timestamp to each transaction, the timestamp basically is the the clock that is being used on, that is being used from the transaction coordinator, the assigned timestamp defines the serial order of all the transactions that are going to execute uh, on uh, on a set of tables that you're doing. So that basically defines the serial order of the transaction, even if you have like concurrent access from multiple users trying to do like transactions on the same set of items, timestamp ordering gives this nice property where we can serialize or define a serial order of these transactions. It's it's like kids are coming and asking us something, right? And then you say, hey, hold on, your brother asked me something first. I'm going to kind of execute his request first because we didn't want one parent at this point in time. Right? So, um, and that's that's exactly what timestamp ordering allows us to do is to have con concurrency control to say, hey, which transactions get, how? what is the order in which transactions will get executed? Awesome, awesome. And then, um, I love that example because that'll spring it up. What, uh, again, sort of like two-phase command, like what other options were there in terms of ordering and, and, and serialization that uh, were considered or, or things like that? Two-phase locking is one where you like lock the items which, on which you're executing the transaction and then you um, finish the transaction, then move on to the next one. But locks means deadlocks. Locks means like a lot of things that you have to uh, take care. So we didn't want that. That's why timestamp ordering, which gives you this nice property of like if you assign timestamp, as I said, then and then the, the transaction executes or appear to execute at their assigned time, 
serializability is achieved. And if you have like the nice property is uh, if you have the timestamp assigned, you can accept like multiple transactions. Even if let's say one transaction is prepared, accepted on a particular storage node. If you send another transaction with a timestamp, uh, you can like put it in the specific order and execute them because there is a timestamp associated with it. There are certain rules which you have to evaluate whether this particular second transaction you should accept when there is already a prepared transaction or not. Uh, but yeah, that's the key, that's the key thing with, with timestamp ordering. It's it's also simple in the sense that let's say that I accepted a transaction with timestamp 10 and I get a transaction with timestamp 9. I'm going to say, you know what? I accepted already something with 10. I'm not going to execute 9 anymore. Please go away and come back with a new timestamp, right? It's, just, it's in the order. It's like in anywhere else, like a DMV where Maybe they kind of accept nine, but you know, they don't accept something which is very old still. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the paper, just talking about like the different interactions and sort of optimizations on top of that, you know, interacting with, you know, singleton operations, right? Sort of reads and how that can interact with conflicting transactions or, you know, conflicting uh, or conflict conflicts among transactions and things like that. I thought that was, um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I guess like, one question I had on there, it, it, it mentions that the, the transaction coordinator, which that's what assigns the timestamp, I believe, right? The coordinator node. Okay, so that's using that AWS time sync service. So that should be within like a couple microseconds or something like that. Uh, but it also says like, hey, synchronized clocks are actually not necessary across these. And there's, there's going to be a little bit of discrepancy. Um, so I guess, why aren't they necessary? And why is it useful? You know, why aren't they necessary? And then why is it helpful, I guess, to have them as synchronized as possible? I think, so for the correctness of the protocol, synchronized clocks are not necessary, right? Because the clocks just act as like a number at this point in time, just a token number. And if there's two transaction coordinators which pick different numbers, then um, it gets automatically resolved and who, who comes out first, right? Um, clocks, so clocks don't have to be synchronized. Um, it's it's uh, for correctness. From an availability perspective, you want to have clocks as closely as possible, synchronize as closely as possible. So the same example I just gave a couple of minutes ago is that let's say there's a transaction coordinator whose clock is off by a couple of seconds, right? Uh, it's behind by a couple of seconds. Then always its transactions are going to get rejected for the same items, which another transaction coordinator assigns time stamp because it, its time is behind. So it's always going to get, say, I already executed a transaction of timestamp X and your timestamp is less, so I'm not going to execute your transaction. So from an availability perspective, it's, nice to have clocks um, uh, closely in sync. And that's exactly why we have, we use time sync because we have some guarantees around like how, how much a clock drift is going to be there and uh, we can control the precision of the clocks. Yeah, so it's that's to right. avoid like unnecessary like cancellations because of these variable timestamps. And for load, we have different transaction coordinators. So timestamps could vary, but we also have like guardrails in the system where we identify a particular coordinator has has the time drifting. We just like excommunicate node that node out from the fleet. Or you know if uh, if storage node also has checks in place where if a transaction coordinator sends a request which is like way out in future, it will say that hey dude, what are you doing? I'm not going to accept this <laughs> transaction. <laughs> so we have guardrails across like you know different levels of guardrails in place to ensure that uh, we keep high availability. For these transactions. I was just gonna I was just gonna ask that because it seems like everywhere in Dynamo it's it's sort of like everyone's checking on each other all the time and it's just like, hey, if I get something goofy, I'm gonna like send that back and 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 also tell them to, to get rid of that. This one. was this was yeah, like I was, when I joined the Simple DB team, I was working with like a guy, David Lutz, and he was like, I, I asked him, I had not built distributed system. He's like, you know, one thing you need to learn, and this will go throughout your career, never trust anyone in the distributed system. That's the default rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I would see it. Okay, we so we talked about serializability, and I know like one thing that comes up a lot around this is like isolation levels, um, which again is like a, a whole other uh, level of, of depth in terms of that. But um, tell me a little bit about, I guess, like the 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 isolation levels we'll get, especially across like different levels of of operations in in Dynamo. Yeah, so I think. Like if you think about it, like transact, get item, transact, write item. Uh, and there is actually a, a documented page as well on this. Um, but transact, get item, transact, write items. Uh, they are like serialized. 
for get items uh, if you do like a consistent get request um, you are like essentially getting like read committed data so you always get read committed data there is nothing which you're getting which is not committed right and if you are doing let's say a non transactional uh, read uh, on a item which is which has already transactions going on as somo pointed out those requests will be serialized with that transaction so if you have a transactional workload and you do like a normal get item those will also be serialized um and but they also are giving you like a read committed data so your get request won't actually be rejected you will get the answer back with the whatever is the committed state of that item at that particular time um and then i think with batch writes and i would say for uh, uh batch writes and transact uh, write items uh, you have like similar at item level the same serializability i think that's 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 a key uh, key point is that um it's very hard to define these in some ways um because there are certain dynamo apis like batch writes that can span different items which are provided just as in a convenience for customers right like customers don't have to come back and go back then how do you define serializability of a single batch write across a transactional write and I, 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 it's hard to do that because the each of these individual writes are serializable by itself but the entire batch write operation is probably not serializable with the transact yeah, write item and, and and helping customers understand that nuance is very very tricky and uh, it's where we kind of have this whole documentation based or lengthy documentation based thing that hey, yes the each individual write within the batch write is serializable but the entire operation is not serializable serializable against a single transact transact write item so i think uh, the nuance is there for batch write and likewise even for scan right like when you're doing a scan in a query you're always going to get the read committed data so if a transaction is executing across the same items as the um the scan then you're going to get the latest committed data um always yep yep absolutely so yeah um and just so i understand it, and and maybe put it in the practical terms like if i do a batch get item in dynamo let's just say i'm retrieving two items and at the same time there's a transaction that's acting on those two items each one of those get operations within batch get will be serializable with respect to that transaction but it's possible that my batch get result has you know one item before the transaction and one item after the transaction yes okay yep and then and then there's the issue i i guess potentially of of um i guess read committed um, okay so read commit uh i always get tied up on this stuff i i think some people see read committed especially like in in like the query respect or or also the batch get respect like hey i'm getting read committed it's not uh serializable here um and and then i think of like okay what are what are the isolation levels and what sort of anomalies can i get if i think of like the the sort of database literature and the thing that comes out to me is like yes it's sort of it is that is true but like you don't see the anomalies that you might from my point of view in a in a relational database where you have a long running transaction like if if you talk, if you look at like the read committed isolation level now you can have well like phantom reads and and non repeatable reads but that's within the context of a transaction but that's not going to happen in dynamo because you have like that single shot single request transaction you don't have like the begin run a bunch of stuff and then end yes. whatever um type of thing so you don't see those type of anomalies just because you can't do that type of operation yes. you know am i saying yeah, that right? right yeah yeah okay and i think as you as you pointed out like just to reiterate i think the between any write operations serializable isolation is there between like a standard read operation you also have serialized transact write item and transact get items like if you care about what you were saying where you know i did a transactional write and then i want to get a trans- like fully serializable like the transaction should not give me an answer back on a bunch of items because i read them as a unit transact get item is what you should use to ensure that you're getting like isolation as a unit as well but if you do batch write and batch get you get at individual item level uh serializable isolation but not as a unit. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, on that same note, transact get items, what like I almost never tell people to use it. What do you, what do you see people using it for? Like what are the what's the core needs there around tra- I I think it's a use I'm not saying it's not a useful thing, but like I I think it's one of those things like sort of the strongly consistent read on a Dynamo leader that that maybe you think you need it less than you actually 
actually do need it. Is that, um, I guess, where, where are you seeing like the transact get items use cases? I think a lot of them I've seen in like where you, I agree with you that most of the cases you can actually model with just like consistent reads or eventually consistent reads. But there are certain use cases where you really want, as I said, as a unit, like you did an operation as a unit. Let's say you are moving state in a state machine in control plane that you're building where you have like three items which like together define the final uh, thing that you want to show to the customer, right? And you don't want to read any of those items in an individual uh, individual manner and show something something to the user. So that's where I think it makes sense to use transact get item where even if any of the one one uh, one of the items that you read is you can cannot accept that to be read committed. That's when you use transact get item. But the the space is very narrow. I agree with you. For the classic example yeah. would be Alex. Like this happened like a couple of days ago. Today is like you're transferring money between your two accounts, right? And at the end, you want to view both the balances together. If you land up doing to a batch get, you may have been in a temporary state of euphoria or like surprise. So you want to use transact get item yeah. to say, okay, fine, I did the transfer. I need to know what, what happens to use the transact get item there, right? Um, there are control planes have such use cases, banks and banks and some such use cases where you kind of finally want to display this stuff. So those are cases where transact get yeah. item is super useful. It's it's almost like preventing end user or like user facing confusion rather than you know your application and, and some of the business like if, if it's like a background process you almost don't need to use transactions. Yes, but items. if if you're depending on one of the if you're depending on both of them to be consistent in the database, right? This is this is a key word, right? Like let's say that I see that that yeah. order status is um, gone from uh, in warehouse to shipped then I expect something else to have been done. Uh, then that consistency will not, you'll not get with a batch get. And if you want a consistent read, then you want to do the transact get to kind of read both, both the items together. Yep. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, I want to stir some stuff up a little bit because uh, um, there, there was some like consternation on Twitter. So at the end of this, this DynamoDB transactions paper and, and also the DynamoDB paper last year, there are some just like charts showing different uh, benchmarks and things like that, that I think are really useful and, um, you know, showing, um, I guess, how does like latency change as as the number of operations you have against your table increase, the number of like transactions you're running against your table increases or like more items in your transactions or or more contention on it, all those things. And some of those charts, or all those charts don't have labels on the y-axis showing, you know, how many, how many milliseconds it takes at all these different levels. Um, why, like, why no, why no labels? We just forgot it. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> I think, I, I think. Akshat forgot to put them in. Yeah. Akshat forgot yeah. to put it, put them in, right? Even even the last check. Yeah. No, I think it, yeah. partly, I think we could have done a little bit better job there. I, the point was not to show the numbers as such, right? I mean, the numbers that I think anybody can grok up. It's very simple test to go run and everybody can run the test and grok the numbers. The point was to show the relative difference between like, for example, a uh, singleton write versus a transactional write, what's the cost, right? Uh, latency cost and it's the X, X amount or more. Um, I think that was the whole point. Uh, and we didn't want to kind of give absolute numbers, which doesn't make sense, right? Uh, uh, one of the lessons was we could have done a little bit better job of normalizing the numbers and presenting the normalized number on y-axis. But I think that's that's a lesson for us to kind of take away next time. Yeah. I I I like it. I, I agree. Like last year when I first read that Dynamo paper, I was like, where are the numbers on that? Like, why wouldn't they they show that? But then the more you think about it, like exactly, like Dynamo's whole point is consistent performance, no no matter what, right? And it doesn't matter how many um, items you have in your table, how many concurrent requests you're making, um, you know, all those different things. And and I think these benchmarks are are trying to show that at different levels, like, hey, it's it's still the same, whether you're doing one item, whether you're doing a million um, transactions per second. Per, per second, it's still... Yep. And we yeah. keep making uh, all these like optimization in the stack to improve performance across the board as well. So I think it's just like, uh, again, as someone pointed out, these numbers will be more distraction than actually help because yeah. you might run an experiment like 10 years later and the performance will be like even better, right? So what's the point? Yep. And yep. the key point is that you get consistent performance as you are scaling your operations. That's the key message we wanted to actually like take away from the from that. Not that, hey, this transaction operated at like 5 millisecond or 10 millisecond or 20 millisecond or whatever that is. Yep. 
Exactly. Yeah, because a lot of those benchmarks can be gamed or, or who knows like what's going on and and just are they representative of, of things? But I think, yeah, showing um, like you're like you're saying, like it doesn't really matter like what those other those other factors are, are mostly unimportant um, to the to the scale you're going to get there. Um, I guess like how um, I, you know, consistent performance with Dynamo is is just like so interesting and, and such a key tenant on 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 just everything in terms of like the the apis and features that are developed and all all that stuff i guess like how far does that does that go and if you had like just, i don't know if this is even easy to think about but if you had some sort of change that would reduce latency for you know your p50 your p90 something like that but would maybe increase your your p99 by 10 20 percent like something like that is that something that's like no hey we don't want to we don't want to increase that spread. We don't want to decrease our, our P99 at any cost. Like, is that, maybe that sort of thing just never comes up, but um, I guess like how, how front of mind is that consistent performance for Dynamo? I think it is like, as I said, it is one of the core tenants in the beginning. That's like one of the core tenants. Whenever we do a new thing in Dynamo, we have to ensure that. So whenever we look at the lens of like improving latencies, I think we start from entitlements. Like what exactly like if we have to do this operation, like what each like hop in the in the overall stack, how much latency is attributed or allowed for each each hop to actually take from the full request. And we go from there. So if there is like network distance between two, like that's one of the entitlements, right? So um, it varies from like when you're looking at a problem, if you find an opportunity to improve the the latency at P50, I think the goal is to make sure the variance between P50 and P99 is also not too high because consistent performance is about like giving you uh, at, at any time when you make a call, you get like the same performance on the read and write operations that you're doing. Very cool. Okay, one, one thing on the latency I wanted to... Um look at it was just like on one of the charts especially showing um how latency changes as you increase the number of transactions you're running there were there was like a spike at the end of, of p99 for very high request rates so if you're doing lots of transactions per second there was a little bit of spike at p99 uh compared to like you know even slightly lower request rates and it, you mentioned it was like a java garbage collection issue um i guess like is that something that like when you see that, you're like, hey, we need to, you know, if, it, if it's like a GC issue, do we need, I know you, you are like doing some stuff in Rust. Is that something you're like, hey, we need to change that because that tail latency is, is um, so unacceptable? Or is it also like, you know, if it only shows up, I think it was like doing a million ops per second, which was they're doing three ops per transaction. So 333 transactions per second. Do you not have that many users doing that to where it's a, a big issue and that P99 is okay at that point? Or like, are, is that something you're actively thinking about? I think so. That that one was a very interesting one because I know uh, we went back and forth on those numbers on what are the issues with that stuff, and that was specifically with the hundred item transactions. So when you when you're doing a hundred item transaction, a transaction coordinator is holding on to those objects for a longer period of time, ensuring that you kind of uh, talking to hundred different nodes, and you know, so the P ninety nine there has um, been higher. We do kind of want to address the P ninety nine issue there, um, but the number of customers using hundred item transactions are also very um, the number of applications using 100 item transactions is also far low, right? Uh, so we would address that on a, if those customers, those applications are using 100 item transactions, they're already paying the latency penalty at this point in time, you have 100 transactions. So um, as far as it's, con as long as it's consistent, we are okay, we'll, we will address it, but maybe not at, um, 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 maybe as not as soon as, but we will kind of definitely address it. Uh, but we want, don't want that to regress, right? Uh, we want to keep it where it is at this point in time and measure it and see what happens. And and we actually run canaries across like all the different AZs, all the different like endpoints that we expose to actually find issues in latency before our customers do. So we have like canaries running all the time, acting like customers, doing these variable size transactions uh, to identify if there is any issue in a particular stack in a particular region or anywhere in the stack, we get paged, figure out what the issue is and resolve it as well. So yeah, we have like, um, not, we don't take this lightly. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I, um, I, I remember that from last year's paper about how you do monitoring and, and sort of those performance segregation tests and you have like all those canaries, like you were saying, but also I think some of your like high, high traffic Amazon.com tables, right? You just sort of get direct access to their 
monitoring and be able to pick up some of the, the latency degradation there, if, if, if any, um, yeah, pretty cool to see some of that stuff. Um, cool. Okay. Transactions, that's great stuff. I want to, uh, just, just sort of closing here, like, you know, you've been, you both been working on Dynamo since it was released now. Um, what does that look like to, I guess, not do new feature development, but, but maintaining or updating the foundations of Dynamo and how much does some of that stuff change? And, and I mean, you know, you would know this better than me, but just like, I don't know, as we've seen changes from like hard disk drives to SSDs to like NVMe, like, is that something that is, is like a regular change or even like the storage engines you're using or like how much of that foundational work, um, how often does that, is that something that gets updated every couple of years or is constant maintenance or what does that look like? So our architecture is constantly evolving. We're finding new things, right? And the best part about Dynamo is customers don't have to worry about this stuff. Like yeah. that's, that's the best yeah. thing. There's a lot of things in the back changing um, all the time. And our key tenant is like customer availability or latency should not regress because we're doing something in the behind. And we do a lot of things. A classic, a classic example would be like when I worked on encryption at rest um, back in 2018, I would say, I keep forgetting these numbers, but anyways, 2018, right? Uh, there was a whole thing there. We kind of totally integrated everybody under the covers with KMS and this was a whole sweep and customers never saw a blip. Uh, so yes, there are things constantly changing in the background. We're trying to improve latencies. We're trying to kind of make things more efficient. Um, and all these customers don't get to see. And that's the best part of being a fully managed service. Uh, um, and to answer your question, it's constantly happening, but nobody gets to know about this stuff. Yeah, and I think yeah, a lot of yep. like developers also ask this question to me, like who are interviewing at our team as well, that, hey, you have been here for that long. Like, are you not bored? I'm like, no, every year there is like some fun problem that yeah. we have to launch. And the best part is as soon as you launch, you don't get one customer. You get like so many customers who want to use your feature and traffic also. You don't get one request or two requests. You get like, you know, millions of requests. So you have this like fun challenge that you have to solve, which has all of like Dynamo has like so many fun problems that still keeps us excited. Yep. Yep. Do you get the same thrill of, of releasing a like public feature, a very visible feature like transactions as when you're releasing something like, you know, adaptive capacity, um, which, you know, for those listening is more like just how, um, Dynamo is like splitting your, uh, provision throughput across the different partitions in your table. And it was something that was, was mostly under the hood. You, you didn't even know about it until you, you all published like a really good blog post on it and then further improvements and including on-demand mode and stuff like that. But like, it, it, do you still get the same thrill when like those sorts of releases come out and you're like, man, we just solved a, a huge problem for a lot of people and, and they might not even know for a little while. Like, uh, what's that, that one like? specifically? Yes. Because a lot of the customers were yeah. complaining about it as well. Like, you know, like they knew, right away. They knew yeah. it right away. And I think we were super excited about, yeah. I think everything we do in Dynamo kind of is very exciting at the end of the day, right? Uh, because you have direct customer impact one way or the other. It's just boils down to what it, what the impact is. I remember once, I don't know which year it was, but I think me and Somo actually worked on a problem which reduced like number of like operational ticket fees to get from like a, really a big dent, like 10x improvement on that. So yeah, I think we get the same thrill. It's It's... It's where you want to put your mind and solve the problem. Uh, and as I said, Dynamo has so much fun, fun problems to solve. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So last two years, you've written some really great papers, the Dynamo DB paper last year, transactions this year. What are we, what are we getting next year? What's the, what's the next paper coming down the pike? Do you have, do you have one? We have to think about it. <laughs> First you have to build something and then we, you know, <laughs> yeah, there is definitely a lot more we are thinking and evaluating what, what we should do. We have also started doing like a lot of talks and at different venues and different conferences. Um, and like, yeah, getting like feedback from customers, like transactions paper, actually the way we decided was also, I would say customer driven. We wrote the paper on DynamoDB and we, I was just looking at like how the response has been on different blogs and a lot of blogs had this theme where people were asking like, oh, I wish there was like details about how transactions were implemented in DynamoDB, it was like a bunch of people had left that comment. So that's when we picked it up and we wrote this paper. So we'll see how the response to this paper is, figure out what customers want and write that. I think it's, a, yeah, yeah, that's, like Akshat said, it's mostly what's going to be the next takeaway message here, right? Like for example, the Dynamo, we said, these are the, our learnings from the past 10 years with transactions. We said, you know, what? you don't, you don't need, always need like a long running transaction on a NoSQL database. You can build a fast scalable transaction with a single request transaction. So 
The next one is going to be what's the next takeaway message for us from uh, from us to the community in general, um, and that's what we'll be focusing on, hopefully soon. Yep, I, I agree. I hope, hope we see it. And that, that that point you're making about like you know what can we take away in longer range transactions? I think both papers are very good at just being like really thinking about user needs from first principles and be like, okay, you know what we can, uh, you know. Other things might have all these features, but you cut off like this 5% of features and you actually eliminate a whole host of problems. And, and as long as you're, you're fine with that constraint, you can get a lot of other benefits as well. So I think just like the framing of user needs up front in both papers is, is so good and helpful in understanding like how this is, is working. So uh, I love that. Hey, Akshat, so thank you for coming on. I respect you both much. I love Dynamo and I'm, I'm really grateful for you coming on to, to talk today. Alex, super thanks for having us, by the way. And you're, you're one of the biggest uh, DynamoDB proponents. Your book is like, <laughs> all, it's probably a lot of reference to a lot. Uh, so super thanks for having us. And it's like a privilege to talk to you about the transactions paper. Yeah, same here. I think you have been doing amazing work and uh, I've been following you for like a long time. Uh, thanks for all the great work that you do. Cool. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll wait to the paper, but everyone be sure to, to check out the paper because there's a lot of great stuff we didn't even get into here. So um, make sure you check that out.